MSW Media. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Wednesday, September 15th, 2021. Today, the Select Subcommittee on the COVID Crisis has released Trump administration email evidence of failures to heed early pandemic warnings. Woodward's new book, Peril, drops more too late bombshells. The California recall election is now over and a witness for the prosecution against Bibi Netanyahu has died in a plane crash. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Dana Goldberg. So really interesting headlines today that the mainstream media seems to just sort of be yeah. missing. And they seem know? to be doing that a lot lately. Yeah. yeah. I mean, oh, they're, they're all over the Woodward book, of, of course. course. So we don't need to purchase that now. So that's good. It's <laughs> usually what happens. <laughs> Like, I'll just read the cliff notes on Twitter. <laughs> really? Because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just getting a little sick of, you know, he's the, the, the Trump tapes with the downplaying the pandemic, like all this stuff, all these bombshells that he kept secret and uses to sell books. It's like, come on, man. Yeah. I got secrets in my book that's coming out that I've never talked about, but none of none of those secrets are going cause, to make or break democracy or cause a couple hundred thousand deaths. Exactly. Yeah. Those are things that you kind of want to get out in the open. And that's uh, that's kind of the theme of today's episode is people keeping shit secret. And it's pissing me off. Later in the episode, though, we are going to be talking to the environmentalist who gave the canary, the water canary TED talk. I absolutely love his name, Sonar Luthra. And uh, we will be discussing what's going on currently with the climate crisis. And I guess that's it. I guess that's all I have for this introduction. That's it. So you want to you want to hit something? <laughs> yeah, let's hit the hot notes. <laughs> hot notes. All right. Top story today that isn't anywhere on mainstream media. At least maybe it will. You know, we record this on Tuesday, so it might be out on Wednesday, but no one's talking about it yet. It's Rep Clyburn, who's the chairman of the select subcommittee on the coronavirus crisis, sent a letter to Pete Navarro, former director of the White House Office of Manufacturing and Trade. The letter is regarding the federal government's response to COVID and the haphazard efforts to obtain critical supplies. The letter cites new evidence that the Trump administration failed to heed early warnings regarding the coronavirus pandemic and that Mr. Navarro and other top advisors used private encrypted email accounts to conduct White House business. On February 29th, 2020, Mr. Navarro received an email calling for a series of immediate actions to help combat the coronavirus, which warned, quote, the CDC has made a series of critical mistakes in implementing the most basic measure in infectious disease control when it distributed ineffective test kits for coronavirus diagnosis. This served to limit our ability to screen individuals for COVID-19 infection and containment. In truth, we do not have a clue how many are infected in the United States. We're expecting the first wave to spread in the U.S. within the next seven days. From now on, the government must be honest about the situation and show it's undertaking major decisive actions. The next day, Mr. Navarro sent a memo to then-President Trump echoing those warnings. And rather than face these realities, Trump downplayed the seriousness of the crisis in the subsequent days, telling the American people on March 10th, we're prepared and we're doing a great job with it. It'll go away. Just stay calm. It'll go away. On March 16th, 2020, Mr. Navarro received two draft memos with immediate recommendations to prepare for widespread infections. This is March of 2020. The first warned that the country faced an urgent and immediate need to ensure an adequate supply of mechanical ventilators and advising that then-President Trump must immediately take the task of the Defense Logistics Agency 
the Defense Reutilization Office, to conduct an immediate inventory of all mechanical respiratory ventilators of all makes and models located in DRMO and other federal agency warehouses. The second suggested that the president should create and prepare or deploy a smart Air Mobile National Guard quick reaction medical team to those cities projected to experience the worst numbers of severe COVID. The weeks that followed, the nation faced overwhelmed hospitals and critical shortage of ventilators. So he was warned ahead of time. And they have this evidence in emails now. But here's the thing. They were using personal email and proton mail to encrypt this shit. Wait, I'm sorry, what? They were using a personal server? Mm. No. Yeah, private emails. Huh. Where have I heard that? I f- it's on the tip of my... Maybe we should call James oh. Comey. He might have an answer. Jim, yeah, Jim. Tall Jim. Hmm. Anyway, documents reveal that high-level officials in the Trump White House regularly used private email accounts to communicate about official business related to COVID. Between February 2020 and January 2021, Mr. Navarro exchanged more than 80 messages with other White House personnel through private Proton Mail accounts. Proton Mail is a private encrypted email service hosted by a Swiss-based technology firm which promises to keep user data outside of the jurisdiction of the United States government as a security feature. Promises like fingers crossed promises or like a mm-hmm. pinky promise? Is it a pinky promise? It's a pinky swear. Yeah. Okay. Use of private email to conduct official White House business may violate the Presidential Records Act. Dana, it does. Yes. Messages sent via Proton Mail included messages where Mr. Navarro pushed for unproven scientific treatments. On May 27th, 2020, he directed Dr. Stephen Hatfill, an outside advisor who worked closely with Navarro at the White House on pandemic stuff, to edit a presentation on possible therapeutic benefits of early treatment with hydroxychloroquine. The next day, Navarro asked Dr. Hatfield to draft a few paragraphs on the importance of hydroxychloroquine as an anti-inflammatory, and he spelled anti-inflammatory wrong, (laughs) in the therapeutic process. (laughs) Today's evidence, now we're back to Clyburn here, today's evidence follows the select subcommittee previous findings that additional Trump administration advisors, including former Assistant Secretary of Public Affairs Michael Caputo, that was the guy in the, named in the Mueller report oh, yeah. the investigation that was the comms director for CDC that like it's all over. literally like had a mental breakdown. Anyway, including Caputo and his former science advisor, Dr. Paul Alexander, they used personal email accounts for official business, including to rebut a CDC scientific report regarding the COVID outbreak at Georgia summer camp. And they did that for political gain. And those communications were on a private server. These communications raised troubling questions about whether you and other Trump administration officials used personal accounts, including the encrypted email service ProtonMail, to intentionally shield your official communications from public view. That's what Clyburn wrote. He continued to say the use of private email accounts by the Trump administration to respond to coronavirus pandemic is deeply concerning and may constitute a violation of government transparency rules and federal law. Given your central role in the Trump administration's management of the nation's supply chain and your use of your personal email for official work in response to pandemic, the select subcommittee requests pertinent documents that remain in your personal control or possession. And this is to Pete Navarro. Mm-hmm. Today's letter requests documents and communications that remain in Mr. Navarro's possession related to his involvement in the pandemic response, as well as information regarding the use of non-government accounts for official business. So, um, yeah, boy, sure would have been nice to get those Woodward tapes. Yeah. You know, a hundred of Trump saying he was going to downplay the pandemic before. You know, a couple hundred thousand more people died. Uh, I just I can't. I, all these cowards. Speaking of Woodward. So the press got a copy of his forthcoming book, as we touched on at the top of the hour. Some of the highlights include a pair of secret phone calls. General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he assured his Chinese counterpart, one of the generals over there of the People's Liberation Army, that the United States would not strike. 
Okay. Another story is that Milley told top Pentagon officials that any nuclear strike would have to go through him. And then there's a story that totally bucks any idea that Pence was any kind of defiant hero for certifying the election. And this is it. The story is from the Washington Post. The narrative basically wrote itself. So then VP Pence, former VP, who has loyally and often just obsequiously stuck by the former guy through thick and thin for whatever fucking reason, suddenly bucked him when his presidency was on the line, okay? So Trump wanted Pence to overturn the results. We saw all that of the Electoral College on January 6th, but Pence refused. Now, this was even as the rioters were storming the U.S. Capitol, as they were calling for his hanging. This was all why professing to do so out of principle and loyalty to the Constitution, remember? So he, oh, yeah. yeah, Pence was like, oh, nope, this is, I am loyal to the Constitution. I am, you know, I'm right. a hero, et cetera. Okay, so right, exactly. He was, he was hailed even by some of the administration's critics as this unlikely hero, some savior of the Republic and more, which was such bullshit. So the reality of all this, we're not finding out, is far from so neat and tidy, okay? It's a, it's a mess. It appears less as though Pence said, quote, enough is enough, and more as though he really entertained doing Trump's bidding, but found that he had no actual authority to make it happen. Here's the quote from the book. So intent was Pence on being Trump's loyal second-in-command and potential successor that he asked confidants if there were any ways he could accede to Trump's demands and avoid certifying the results of the election on January 6th. In late December... The authors reveal Pence called Dan Quayle, a former vice president and fellow Indiana Republican, for advice. Okay. What you're calling Dan Quayle? I mean, <laughs> at least it wasn't for, just, to help with the spelling bee. Quayle was adamant. I just want to like, see a TV commercial. Oh, I was like, do you need advice? Call Dan Quayle, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then no. it's like Bob Odenkirk, or you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Better call Saul. You have a better chance of getting help. So Quayle was adamant, according to this author, right? According to Woodward. He said, Mike, you have no flexibility on this. None. Zero. Forget it. Put it away. That's what Quayle told him. But Pence pressed him on this author's right, asking if there were any grounds to pause the certification because of ongoing legal challenges. Quayle was completely unmoved. And Pence ultimately, of course, agreed. And now that's according to the book. It wasn't because he was following the Constitution. (laughs) <laughs> yeah wow and i think we knew that i mean all of a sudden he's gonna be like oh no we've got to follow the rule of law get the fuck out of here would have been nice to hear that before the impeachment you know and I, again tired of woodward holding back important information to sell books yep once again things that could have been brought to my attention yesterday and i, I honestly i agree with alexander vinman in fact because alexander vinman tweeted he needs to resign millie needs to resign Because if he bucked the chain of command and and didn't resign or speak out at the time, he needs to resign now. We cannot have rogue joint chiefs. No. No matter who the president is. And that should terrify anyone that our military was making policy calls and not telling us. You know, the system isn't set up that fucking way. That's not how it works. And, uh, you know, we just happened to be in the situation where the president was awful and Millie was, you know, that's, you know, was did a, a seemingly good thing. Right. But you can't do that. You can't go out around the chain of command. You can't buck what the the commander in chief is doing. No matter how batshit crazy he is. And I know batshit's not a real thing. Do not write in. It's not it's not what it's called. Guano guano. Guano crazy. <laughs> so many people correct me on Twitter. 
Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's you you can't do that. He he should have spoken up at the time. He he made so many mistakes walking with Trump over to St. John's. Yes. As some show of military togetherness. You got to wonder when these people put their reputation on the line like this for this SOB, what, why? There's got to be a reason why. And I understand the desire to to want to defy him, but you can't break the, you can't break the chain of command. Right. You just can't. Okay. Yeah. In other news, and I've said this many times, Republicans should be careful what they wish for. On September 3rd, just two days after Texas banned abortion, pretty much altogether in the state, Vivek Bhaskaran, the chief executive of an Austin-based online survey software company, quickly assembled the handful of female employees that are based in the city, in Austin. In the virtual town hall that lasted 15 minutes, he told the women that regardless of insurance, the company would cover out-of-state abortion services. Amazing. He says, I'm not a politician. I can't change anything, but I'm still responsible for my employees in Texas, and I have a moral responsibility to them, said Boscaron. That's the CEO of Question Pro. And for the past several years, Texas has been selling itself as a tech haven, like, we're going to be the new Silicon Valley. Everybody come here, move here. And they attracted startups and tech giants like Oracle, Hewlett Packard, and e- Elon Musk, yeah. right, who moved to the state. And big tech companies such as Facebook, Amazon, Apple, they've all grown their presence in the state, opening new warehouses and data centers and production facilities. But Texas has recently swerved to the right on abortion and voting restrictions, as well as a ban on coronavirus vaccine mandates, has many workers and industry leaders like Abbas Karan worried about retaining workers and recruiting smart people. <laughs> to move to Texas. While experts say it's too early to tell whether the new laws will cause any massive change in worker migration, they'd note that right-wing measures could lead to a pause on left-leaning tech workers considering moving to the state. Yeah. Well, all right. I, I, I don't want to just keep introducing new segments to the show, but we might you might have to find another rhyme or another jingle for this one because this one is uh, filed under sketchy as fuck. Oh, yeah. We have, uh, we Do you have, have one for an that? old one. Do you think they broke the law? It's time to play sketch or nah. All right. Or you decide if something is sketch or Perfect. Nah. Yeah. All right. So here we go. Two people were killed. Now, I know that's not a great way to start the story. We were just joking about it, but you'll, you'll get it. Two people were killed on Monday when a light aircraft crashed into the sea close to the Greek island of Samos. This is from Greek authorities. The two were identified as Esti and Chaim Garon. The latter of whom served as the deputy director of the communications ministry and was a prosecution witness in the Netanyahu trial. Mm. Yes, the small private aircraft that was flying from Israel to the Greek island with two persons on board crashed close to the island's airport. This is a quote. We recovered two bodies from the spot. A Coast Guard official told Reuters without providing further details. Another quote, the aircraft crashed about a mile south of the airport. And that's from a second official. And I know it's a very serious story, but AG? Mm. Sketch. Sketch. No, you know what? I'm sure it's totally normal. Totally Not at all normal. suspicious. Total coincidence. Sounds total Putin-esque, which also yeah. sounds like a really bad tomato sauce when I say it like that. Total Putin-esque. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's uh, you know, it's tragic. And I don't know. I I'm sure there'll be investigations into it. I hope that there is. And I, I do apologize for the, the jovial tone. It's just so interesting how this stuff happens. And I'm so sorry for the families. But some things we just, to take them as just a coincidence is naive mm. this night. Yeah, no such a thing, right? All right, next up is my discussion with the man who gave the Water Canary TED Talk. I really suggest you give it a listen. His name is Soner Luthra, and he will be with us after the break. Stay with us. After the 
Hey, everybody, it's Allison Gill for The Beans. On September 11th, 2001, 60 amateur sailors were at sea filming a reality show on an 18th century replica ship. They were weeks from land and the nearest TV or radio. That morning, a single message was conveyed through their one satellite phone. Four planes hijacked, two towers down, Pentagon attacked, thousands dead. And that was it. Not a single other piece of information for weeks. What was it like to experience 9-11 in isolation? And how would they make sense of the radically different world they returned to? This is just one of the stories in 9-12, the new podcast series from Amazon Music and Pineapple Street Studios. In each episode of 9-12, the host, Dan Taberski, tells stories of characters whose lives would never be the same after September 11th. Through them, we begin to realize that there are new lessons to be learned and that we might have enough distance now from 9-11 to make sense of some things we couldn't understand before. I highly recommend our listeners check out 912. The inside stories are compelling and eye-opening. And if you're interested in taking a deep dive to really learn more about 9-11 and its impact, you've got to listen and subscribe to 912. Follow 912 wherever you get your podcasts, or you can binge all seven episodes right now on Amazon Music or with Wondery Plus. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Today, I am joined by the founder and CEO of Water Canaries. His name is Sonar Luthra. Sonar, welcome. Thanks for being here today. Thanks, Allison. I'm really excited to talk to you. Because this is such a fascinating concept, what you've, what you've built, the, the, this organization called Water Canary. I want you to tell us a little bit about what it is, what you do, and what prompted you to sort of get into this. So I founded Water Canary 11 years ago in response to some work I was actually doing um, with uh, UNICEF on the Millennium Development Goals. We developed a sensing technology for just testing basic potability in water very cheaply. And it was really an effort to kind of eliminate this scarcity of uh, real-time water quality data so that, for instance, if you had like a, the Haiti cholera outbreak was, you know, one potential use case. But, you know, when you have more people dying from uh, waterborne illness every year than, you know, cancer and AIDS combined, the idea was really to, to use technology to achieve, you know, our ambition back then was to you know, take what they called them the bottom billion, uh, not a term I was ever really a fan of, but to lift them up and to, you know, my, my family immigrated from India. And so uh, it's an issue like very close to my heart. So it, it really started as a technology and a sensor company. But the nature of the problem really fundamentally changed over the course of the work that we've done. And you know, although I, with a tech background, had a really, you know, firm belief that Technology was the answer. As I eventually found, you know, these are these really are political problems, and they have to be dealt with in a much more thoughtful, not in a one size fits all civil bullet type approach. And so, you know, over the years, we kind of evolved into a consulting firm that certainly does technology work, certainly has done things like custom sensors for clients to meet their needs, but is increasingly focused on public policy because, in the end, when when the Trump administration began to dismantling, you know, hundreds of environmental laws or more than a hundred, I should say, every single one of those, you know, eliminated the demand for science, eliminated demand for environmental monitoring, eliminated this kind of like long-term knowledge base that we had developed. And so, you know, our much of the work to be done right now is actually just to get back to where we were before mm. that administration took power. And that on one level means rebuilding the government and bringing back the policies that 
we had fought so hard for decades to get to. But it's also about thinking about the future. And it's about thinking through how do we, what types of institutions are we going to need to actually live in a world where climate change is upon us? And the thing that the fundamental like disconnect that I find in my field, in my area in water is that, you know, although it's, it's now like with this latest IPCC report, it's finally, you know, becoming center stage that like water is the thing that's changing with climate change. When temperature rises, more water can be transferred into the atmosphere. That means that you have increases in drought. You have lower stream flow. Your lakes have less water in them. It also means that rain gets more intense. It also means that, you know, the chemistry of our oceans are changing. And it also means that our forests, as we are seeing right now in California, are drying out. And all of these things are approaching a tipping point that's actually far sooner, you know, on, on chronologically than the deadlines that we're facing with emissions for like, say, the year 2050. And the thing that I think is sometimes missed is that if we don't take care of these water issues and come up with better ways to manage land to, to for instance, keep more water in the ground, ensure that our forests are actually ensure that we're actually using land in ways that can bring back streams, can bring back stream flow. If we don't start to do those things, the things that nature does to keep carbon out of the atmosphere, those are things that we're going to be losing Mm. towards the end of this decade. And that type of spiral is the thing that keeps me up at night, Mm. is getting to that tipping point where it's no longer even about human emissions because the amount of carbon that everybody is breathing and exhaling every day is no longer going to be removed at the rate at which it has been historically. Right. So these these variables have impacts on one another. And talking about the timeline, what sort of timeline are we looking at right now? So I don't actually like to give deadlines because I can guarantee you I'll be wrong. (laughs) And, you know, on some level, one of the things that people in this world are kind of backed into is giving estimates and then being told you were wrong and having to account for that later on. So the year 2030 to me looms in the distance as one where things are going to be fundamentally different. Now, whether that means we will have lost major glaciers um, in the Himalayas, which you know would, would directly impact and limit access to freshwater for over 2 billion people, whether we will have seen just enough sea level rise for saltwater to be infiltrating freshwater aquifers, meaning that coastal water basins will be full of saltwater and left having to resort to very energy intensive treatment. All of these things are on the table and there are many of them. And that could, you know, in, in I would say a worst case scenario, mean half the world's population losing water security you know, over the next decade. But the good news is that these things are preventable. Mm. Like they literally are. There are ways to really transform our relationship to water. There are institutions we need to build. There are technologies that need to be developed. But as long as there's kind of this disconnect where we're only talking about an energy transition, we're kind of leaving ourselves unprepared for a much bigger crisis to come, if that makes sense. No, it does make sense. And, and uh, you know, we had talked offline about you wanting to build what you call a weather service for water. And I want to talk about that and find out what you mean. But I do have to take a quick break. Will you stay with me? Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. We'll be right back. 
Hey, everybody, it's Allison for The Beans. We've heard the expression, think globally, act locally, and I agree wholeheartedly. To me, local makes better quality, like farm-to-table restaurants giving diners an experience they can't find anywhere else while supporting whole communities in the process. An American giant knows the power of local. They go beyond made in America and forge lasting relationships with local manufacturers, workers, and communities to obsess over every single detail of their clothing at every step of production. That's how they made their flagship classic full-zip hoodie, which went on to be called the greatest hoodie ever made. I have it. I love it. And their product line has grown well beyond the first best-selling hoodie. Their core commitment to revolutionizing your everyday wardrobe has not changed. I love the quality of American Giant Apparel. Their clothes are durable, but the fabric is still soft and comfortable. Their locally made clothing is not only beautiful, but it's better for the wearer, the people in communities locally that are impacted every step, and the environment. So you're not because you're buying cheap things over and over again and putting a, you know, filling up the landfills. So explore American Giant's collection of durable essentials at American-Giant.com. You'll get 20% off when you use code DAILYBEANS, all one word, at checkout. That's 20% off at American-Giant.com and use promo code DAILYBEANS. And today's show is also brought to you by my favorite puzzle game. It's called Best Fiends. And if you've listened to the show for a while, you know I'm kind of obsessed with this mobile game. To me, it's the best match three style game ever made. The rest are basically just the same game over and over with different color schemes. Stop crushing the same old candy. Try something fresh and exciting. It's There's strategy here. It takes brain. It's got, like, it takes brain power. And Best Fiends has captivating storylines. The good guys are the fiends and the bad guys are the slugs. And you start out with little wee baby fiends, but as you progress through the game, they become more powerful. You can level them up, use them strategically. And new fiends join the team to help you solve increasingly challenging puzzles. With Best Fiends, you get an action-packed adventure and a brain-boosting puzzle game all at once. With new content added all the time, you're never bored. I think I'm at level well, almost 3,000 now. I'll have to double-check, but it's up there. But they have thousands of levels. More are added every day, and there's always a new challenge to look forward to whenever I need a little self-care break from reality or a little mental boost to keep me sharp. You can download Best Fiends free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Everybody, welcome back. We are talking with the founder and CEO of Water Canary, Sonar Luthra. And I'm assuming the canary part is like canary in a coal mine? Yep. All right. All right. I got it. <laughs> I figured it out. I sussed it all. We can go home now. I figured everything out. No. That's all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> we solved it. No. We solved it. Before the break, I had alluded to you saying you wanted to build a weather service for water. Talk about what that means. So if we were to rewind a bit to like a pre-industrial planet, there are changes that happen across the water cycle that roughly occur with the seasons. So for instance, in spring, you typically have a lot of rainfall, so that leads to water quality changes. By the end of summer in a state like California, you typically find much lower water quality just because there's not enough to dilute what's, what's in the environment. So most of the systems that we have around water are built along this understanding of like hydrological time as something that's very slow, very consistent, and doesn't change it at a rate where we can really witness with our eyes these changes taking place, aside from like cyclical things like snow turning to rain. But when you disrupt that water cycle, when you know human activity starts to transform every aspect of it, which is what happens when you start to feed billions of people, it's what happens when you start to manufacture goods for billions of people the rate at which these things change actually starts to accelerate. And we've witnessed this over the past century pretty consistently. And a lot of these things were happening well before we were, we were having climate debates. 
And so, you know, from where I was standing as a sensor developer, you know, we eventually moved from like handheld devices into remote sensors and the idea of like building monitoring networks for these things. And one of the things we had to constantly be looking at was like, well, how much data do we really need? And the thing that was was really fundamentally challenging about that was realizing that all of our data sets are assuming on some level seasonal change. Like if I look at California water quality data from like a given stream, chances are for any contaminant, you're collecting and testing around four samples a year. But in the world we're in, that is something that actually is going to be changing on a daily and sometimes hourly basis. Mm. So the real question that comes up at that moment is the traditional way we do hydrology, the right approach, because that's something that you know uh, you can assume is going to take decades. But with with something like the weather service, you really are chasing a moving target at all times. You're doing a consistent data collection effort that does not necessarily assume that what happened yesterday will be will only change next quarter, right, <laughs> which right. is kind of what's <laughs> which is kind of what's built into these assumptions. And so, from where I was standing, you know, developing technologies that we you know wanted to be at the heart of data collection efforts at like the USGS and, and the EPA was that operationally, you actually just need to be thinking about this from a completely different lens. Mm. And the thing that I find so inspiring about weather services is just that like, you know, we used to actually live in a world that was as uncertain and unsafe as the world we seem to be re-entering. Like before we had weather services, air travel wasn't really possible in a commercial sense. Like it was too easy to hit a gust of wind and have a plane crash. It was too easy to lose ships at sea. It was too easy to have a food shortage. Those are all problems that are kind of coming back as we get closer to climate change and these, these looming deadlines. So for me, the, the thing that like I really want the U.S. government to be focusing on intently is a real restructuring of how we actually attain knowledge about water that is actually really focused on the fact that like these things are changing at scales that the existing institutions are not set up for. And whether it's about building bridges between institutions, like, you know, I would love to see Deb Holland at Interior, mm -hmm. that, you know, collaborating with commerce and in the weather service to to really revitalize. NASA, NOAA. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Whether it's that or whether it's an entirely new entity, is, is that, that concerns me a lot less than can we track things as they change mm. so that we're not waiting eight years for the next report to tell us what was happening over the prior eight years? Because that isn't time we have. And the thing that would give me a ton of hope here is that if we actually had that capacity a lot of the uncertainty that we're facing, we could respond to far faster. You know, we could do much more strategic and targeted interventions in our forests. You know, we could do much more targeted interventions just around how we price insurance mm -hmm. to actually make these things, maybe not necessarily hazards that we can completely avoid, but, but hazards that we can manage in the same way that we manage risks that we now don't even remember having faced. Right. Yeah, I would I would much rather have a water force than a space force to be honest. I agree. <laughs> and and the reason is and talk about this because this is something that a lot of people don't think about, but how does how does this impact, you know, this running out of time, this scenario? How does that impact our national security? It's staggering how big an impact this is going to have. So so uh, contrary to what some people say, water conflict already exists. It's something that has always been with us. 
And yet it's intensifying as we, we get closer to a world where the water cycle is completely unstable. So although I wouldn't go so far as to call it the cause, it's very difficult to imagine the Syrian civil war having occurred on the timeline that it did if there had not been, one, an effort to build expansive irrigation networks that were kind of using all the extra water in the country to grow crops that, that occurred immediately before a major drought. Mm-hmm. Because when that happened, there were competing interests, like there were more interests at the table, more people who wanted that water than there even had been prior. And so what that meant is that you had lots of farmers who were not necessarily given first access to water, losing their livelihoods, wandering into cities. Like this set the stage for instability. And it, it is no coincidence, I think, that you know what, what we see continually in violent conflict is, is often rooted in ecological events that we're not really used to thinking about in a security context. So, you know, when I look at what's what's happening right now on the news, it's very clear that we're going to need to come up with a reason to legitimize the U.S. military's presence around the globe to, to be a welcome presence. And I can think of no better way to do that than to actually focus on like the thing that is going to pose a greater threat to life on this planet than anything else, which is water. If we had the capacity in the U.S. military to go into a country that is that is facing ecological collapse and develop a capability to, to prevent that, nothing could be more effective at preventing the violent conflicts of the future. And when you look at what is happening on the global stage, you know, there's there's a risk and you go in this direction of, you know, something like almost like a water imperialism. And I think that would be a terrible mm. outcome. But what we should want is for every country to have a very firm grip on its own water security, to be able to manage its own water sources, to not to enable them to do that. Because managing this for other people is very difficult. Mm-hmm. But if we actually can do that in a friendly way, I think it would go a very long way to restoring both a reputation abroad, but also just preventing us from from accelerating into something that would be very difficult to, to pull out of later. Yeah, true. And, and you know, speaking domestically, I mean, we can throw money at farmers all day, but if they don't have water, yeah, they don't have water. You can't turn your money into water if there's no water. And, you know, that being food insecure here puts us at risk in a national security way in a, a number of ways, including maybe having to rely on others for or for water or for food. And it's just totally destabilizing. And so I, you know, that the idea that each nation, you know, cares for their water supply and ensures the, you know, the safety of the water, the, the efficacy, the, you know, the ability to ha- to even just have it absolutely is critical to national and global security and food security. Yes. And, and maybe finding ways to reestablish trust. Yeah, some goodwill, a little goodwill instead of going in and trying to nation build. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, I mean, and it's important to understand, you know, there is no real history of civilization, like where you did not see communities coming together to manage their water challenges collectively. Oh, Tigris Euphrates, the the cradle of civilization. I mean, it's all based on that, right? Yep. It's it's the most like basic thing. And if we let that break. I don't know what nation states are for mm-hmm. if we can't work together to, you know, meet each other's water needs. 
And so, yeah, that, that to me is the culture shift that, you know, time hasn't run out, but like, we all need to really ask for that and demand it really, because without it, I just, I, I don't, I don't think these are problems that we can expect to solve. They're going to be an order of complexity far beyond anything that we're witnessing today. Well, I think we have a good opportunity with these $3.5 trillion infrastructure package, the $1 trillion yeah. bipartisan infrastructure package. They, those aren't written right now. At least the $3.5 trillion budget is not written. It's, it, it, the money is allocated, yeah. and now it's time to mark it up. So this is a really excellent time to call your representatives, senators, congresspeople, Absolutely. and tell them, tell them why this is important and that it needs to be addressed in this bill. And, and, and there are, I'm sure, House and Senate committees who have been given an amount of money they can spend. Absolutely. Those are the committees. Those are the committees that we should, for like the, envi- the environmental committee, you know, are there committees dedicated to water security in the House or the Senate? Absolutely. And I'll, uh, I'll, I'll give you some links you can maybe post at the bottom if, if that would be helpful when this goes up. Yeah, we'll definitely put those in the show notes because that would be yeah. where I would focus my attention is those committees who have a, a gobs of money to spend in this budget re- reconciliation package. And if their job is water, we should be contacting them and pushing them on this kind of thing. And, and one of the things I want your listeners to know, though, is that it doesn't end if that bill passes. No, like, no. More so that that the way these funds get allocated typically is that utilities or states or your local government is going to have to apply for some of these funds. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, part of this, which is not just something that should be done right now because we need to rebuild our infrastructure, but is a way to be thinking about it going forward is get to know who's in charge of your water. Like get to know what issues they're facing and get to know what constraints they're operating under. Yeah. And who's running for those positions on your local water boards? Absolutely. And because they're the ones, if if we can get this in the infrastructure bill, they're the ones that are going to be responsible for allocating and spending those funds on projects where you live. And uh, that's where shit gets done. Exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate your time today. This has been so fascinating. I've, I've learned a lot. And, and can you tell everybody where they can follow you on, on social so they can keep up with what you're what you're talking about and what you're doing? Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm at Sonar on Twitter. And uh, my, my comp- uh, water canary is watercanary.com. And, you know, we we focus on a lot of different problems. You know, I spent part of the early half part of this year, you know, drafting a plan for a our friend Eliza's uh, Manhattan DA candidacy for, you know, to create an environmental justice unit out of Manhattan DA's office. And, you know, so we work on things that range from environmental justice to like advising the finance industry and how to, how to deal with risks that are not even registering in their data sets. So we'd love to talk to you and see if we can help. That's awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. And I look for, I want to check back in with you as we approach 2022, or maybe when we start, you know, panning out this, this budget reconciliation, I'd like to, I'd like to check back in if that's okay. That would be awesome. Looking forward to it. Awesome. Thanks so much. Sonar Luthra, everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. Hey everybody, it's Allison for the beans. And this portion of the show is brought to you by Bowl and Branch. I think little things can make a huge difference, like a tiny gesture of kindness, paying it forward, holding the door open for a stranger, saying something considerate to a friend. And although these things seem small, all together, 
they make a big difference. And all the little things we do add up to a big legacy, right? And Bolin Branch was started by a husband and wife team. They wanted to create a textile company that cared about the details, the tiny details that would make their product just amazing and it would make it last. And you feel the difference in their best-selling, beautifully crafted signature sheets. I love mine. Bolin Branch sheets are my favorite. They're buttery soft, luxurious. They have a beautiful drape and a silken texture. I absolutely love them. The cloud weight super soft sateen weave gets softer with every wash. They have the perfect balance of weight and breathability to pamper warm or cool sleepers in any season. And there's no middlemen between you and Bull and Branch. So you get luxury quality for the fairest price. They stand behind their products and honor a 30 night worry free guarantee if you're unsatisfied for any reason. So to experience an entirely new standard of comfort, visit BolandBranch.com. You get 15% off your first set of sheets with promo code DAILYBEANS, all one word. That's BolandBranch, B-O-L-L and branch.com and use promo code daily beans and today's show is also brought to you by all form i'm highlighting all form because they make gorgeous furniture to your specifications they create beautiful premium furniture for your living room designed specifically for you and it's delivered fast and free to your doorstep and with all form you can customize your own luxury furniture using very premium materials but at a very small fraction of the cost of traditional stores you pick your sofa size color shape fabric which is spill stain and scratch resistant I got a three-seater sofa in whiskey-colored leather with a walnut leg finish and a chaise lounge. It is comfy and roomy and amazing, and I love it. And all form, you know, traditional stores take eight to ten weeks to deliver your couch. That not with all form. It takes three to seven days to arrive in the mail, and you could assemble it yourself in a few minutes. No tools needed. They have beautiful armchairs and love seats all the way up to an eight-seat sectional, so you can always start small and add more seats later if you want. Best of all, you get 100 days to decide if you want to keep it. That's more than three months, and if you don't love it, They'll pick it up for free and give you a full refund. So there's no risk here at all. They also have a forever warranty, literally forever. So to find your perfect sofa, check out allform.com slash dailybeans. And Allform is offering 20% off all orders for our listeners when you use our URL, allform.com slash dailybeans. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Joining me for the good news today is Dana, because she's here every day. I love being here every day, the beans in your ears, in your hearts. Especially this month when uh, when Amy's off being a movie star, so. I know. Yes. Uh, Blessed life. be. I know, I know. What was the Mitch Hedberg joke? My sister wanted to be an actress. She lives in a trailer, so she got halfway there. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, time for good news, confessions, corrections, idioms, idiots of the Senate, write a new hallelujah verse, whatever. We have so many things. Shared swears, find a cat, happy places. Send it all to us at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. First up is from Danielle, no pronouns given. Lil Bean update, 25 weeks now. Got a cool 3D to share with my friends in this incredible community. At first, it's like looking at the old versus young woman optical illusion, but he's cute, I promise. Oh, I mean, that is amazing. <laughs> Just all curled up. That and you know, I really do feel like in the womb was the last time I was able to touch my toes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look at that foot's right by the head there. Oh my goodness, that was a flexible baby. Oh, but yeah, look, and then she put the optical illusion. <laughs> I've been looking. It's been going, young woman, old woman, young woman, old woman. Uh huh. Uh huh. Beautiful, beautiful. Awesome. Congratulations, congratulations, hey, Danielle. This is from Joe. Pronoun she and her. Hello, my beans queens. Love you. Love the pod. Onward. So I have a small thing for shit kids say. Now, I'm not a mom, but my godson has been in experience of having kids, but his mom, who's my best friend for over a decade, gets to take him home after. 
Yeah. That's how I feel about being an aunt. <laughs> Same about my goddaughter. Yeah. Right? Alex is an amazing little guy, and we've been buddies since before he could really talk. One of our favorite things to do is to go to a local bookstore chain called Half Price Books otherwise known as heaven. Mm. So even before he had an appreciation for an ability to read the written word, Alex and I, me and Alex, this isn't writing, by the way, it's not me, you guys. Alex and I, me and Alex, uh, would wander the store looking at the marvelous books. And it's Alex and I. His mom <laughs> kind of would get stuck in the manga section. Manga? What is that? Yeah, I, don't I don't know, know what The manga is. section. So I would be chasing Alex through the store until he found a section that grabbed his interest. One such time, he was about four or five, he had some words, but no sense. I think everyone knows what I mean there, right? He was running around the nonfiction section. Alex found the most important book. It was a computer manual from 1985-ish. Now, I didn't buy it, though there was about a 20-minute debate between me and Alex, and I'm still confused about the me and I thing. (laughs) Regarding (laughs) that this outdated manual was the most important thing. So this also was followed by a discussion where Alex informed me that the boys' books were the ones on Texas property laws from what appeared to be the 1800s and the girls' books were the (laughs) World War II section. Oh. Kids, am I right? Uh, Tax shall be paid by Mr. Snickers, enjoying his new seat. Thank you for reading and thanks for everything. No. Oh, that's cute. cute. It's like a dinosaur. It is a dinosaur. Hi. Hi, Mr. Mr. Snickers. Hello. Dinosaur beanbag pillow. A chair, yeah, that's outstanding. Yeah. <laughs> Look at the little so belly. Cute. <laughs> thank you, thank you for that submission. Next up is from Jeff. Pronouns he and him. Hey, beans queens, I enjoy hearing Ag reminisce about strapping on Doc Martens to go punch Nazis at punk shows. It made me want to share an incident from two years ago. I run a small restaurant known for its fries. All right, cool. One Sunday afternoon, this guy comes in and orders a large order of fries and nothing else. It was pretty slow. A slow point in the afternoon when the restaurant's mostly empty and my crew was busy with cleaning tasks, so I was making the guy's fries. Suddenly, he mentions a book I've deliberately forgotten the title of and asks me if I've read it. I say no, and he proceeds to tell me it's about a supposed Jewish cabal running the world and that I work like them. Excuse me? I say as he responds, you're a dirty Jew. People like you, people like to be provocative to service workers because most of us won't respond out of fear of losing our job, but I couldn't let this go. Yeah, you own the restaurant too, Jeff. I walked over to the register, grabbed seven bucks, gave it to him and said, here's your money back. Get out of my restaurant. He was holding a boat of free peanuts we have. (laughs) He took the money back. He proceeded to grab my collar and dump the peanuts down the front of my shirt. Oh my God. Before I knew what was happening, I had pulled back and slugged him in the jaw, knocking his glasses across the restaurant. I was as surprised as he was. I had never in 49 years of life swung a fist in anger before. I said, get out of my restaurant. I continued, and he, visibly shaking, said, okay, just let me get my glasses. And then he slunk out. Sure, I would get fired for this. I called my boss to tell him what happened, and his response was, well, you've got to defend yourself. Nice. (laughs) Like you, I don't advocate for violence, but I do say with pride that I have punched a Nazi. (laughs) For my pet tax, I present to you my two girls, Anchor, Border Aussie, and Dahlia, the Destroyer. Bee guy? Is that like a beagle? Gemini? Or something? <laughs> <laughs> Dolly is the one doing the creek sploot. Creek sploot. Oh, creek sploot. Oh my God. Oh my that's God. sweet. You know what, Jeff? They're beautiful dog. Sometimes you got to punch a Nazi. And you know what? I'm not a violent person, but if someone called me a dirty Jew, I'm not so sure it wouldn't make me one. Yeah, I was actually talking to Rachel Vindeman about 
oh, who, who we were watching some video. I think it was the woman who was just deliberately coughing yes. on people. The the more recent one, not the one that got 30 months right. in prison, but the or 30 days in prison, but the this recent one, yeah. one who she worked for SAP or something. She got fired for her going viral, uh, literally trying to yeah, cough no on kidding. people at a grocery store. And Rachel's like, I have never hit anybody in my life, but I would have a hard time not punching that person right yeah. in the face. I would too. Yeah. I would too. You know, sometimes you just get pissed your limit and we were all human. Jeff, thank you for that inspiring story. This one's from Brian, pronouns he and him. Hi, Beans Queens. A bit of good news. I suffered debilitating anxiety and depression for almost of my 41 years on this planet. I can't count how many times I've been in my doctor's office and desperately wanting to bring up the subject, but just couldn't. Well, that changed in January of 2020. I finally brought it up to my doc and soon had a therapist and a prescription for my sertraline. What a difference. For fuck's sake, I cannot believe how much a 100 milligram pill and just talking with someone once a month can change a life. Mm. In just a year, I went from scoring very high on severe anxiety and depression to nearly the lowest possible score. In just a year, I went from 25 years of soul-crushing solitude to finding, dating, and falling in love with a wonderful woman who makes my heart... Wow, that one got me. Yeah. Feel full. Man, Brian. Want me to take it? I'm all right. All right. Looking back at my life and how much therapy and meds have changed it, I can now see how much undiagnosed and untreated depression exists in the world. Oh, there was one more big change in my life. I got a cat. Her name is Luna. She's two years old and has all that kitten energy. But outside of her early morning and late night murder lust, she's a total (laughs) sweetie. Brian, my goodness, I wish I could just give you a big old hug. I am so happy for you, my friend. Like, obviously, you can hear it just beyond words, literally beyond words, happy for you. And that cat is absolutely beautiful. My goodness. The second picture, she that is murderless oh, in yeah. her eyes. I can see it. And then murder's exhausting is the third picture. Just sleepy time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all tuckered out from Whew. all the murder. Uh, excellent submission. Thank you. Next up from Mark P. Pronouns he and him. Hey, Beans Queens, I've been listening to you since the MSW Kitchen days. Thank you for keeping me sane. I have a game idea. New Hallelujah verse. Oh, AG tweeted, yeah, this is what we yes. talked about yesterday. AG tweeted a pic recently that read, you pick a phrase, you pick the rhyme, repeat the sound another time. Five I ams, an extra beetle do ya. Another rhyme, a rising note. Congratulations, you just wrote another goddamn verse to hallelujah. Yeah, so I shamelessly stole this, posted it on Facebook, where a clever friend replied, you read your screen, you like the post. This comment will be liked the most. But you don't read the comment thread much, do you? Oh, you didn't even sing it. You read your screen, you like a post. This comment will, will be liked, liked the most. But you don't, you don't really the read the thread much, do you? To which I replied, I hit reply, a little snark. You know this one comes from Mark. Complete another verse for hallelujah. <laughs> well done. Uh yes, I, I that's I'm so glad that you wrote in, Mark, because I forgot about the post about that reply with this comment will be liked the most. That is but you so don't good. read the comment thread much, do you? <laughs> For pod tax, I'm including pics of our foster four foster dogs, Jen, Jess, Jazz, and Nadia. All right, the she stands alone with Nadia there. Five foster cats: Sylvie, Sasha, Magic, Mystic, and Cheddar. <laughs> <laughs> and our foster failure, Maple. 
are fosters and many other pets that are available for adoption through Animal Education and Rescue in Libertyville, Illinois. That's Animal Education and Rescue in Libertyville, Illinois. Their website is aear.org. Thanks again and keep up the great work. Look at this fucking menagerie. I know. Seriously, I am so allergic to this photo. <laughs> this compilation of animals. Look at that puppy on the bottom right, Jess. Oh, my goodness. With the ears. Oh, my goodness. Little Dobby ears. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for sending all these in. Everybody, please send in your good news stories, Nazi punching stories. I'm down for that. It's the only kind of violence I'll tolerate, really, at the end of the day. <sighs> you can do that at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. Dana, do you have any final thoughts before we get out? Well, um, we're recording this before the end of the day on Tuesday. So my final thought is I am just praying that Newsom still has a job when we wake up tomorrow and you're listening to this podcast. And that Larry Elder can go back under the rock he crawled out of. Yeah. And I'm also hoping it's a landslide. Embarrassing embarrassment of embarrassingness. Itchness. I'm yeah, infuriated that they are already, you know, he started a website saying he was going to fight this result and it was already, you know, a corrupt election. Yeah, he's already hired lawyers. Yeah. These people need to be prosecuted for this shit. I'm so tired of it. They're, they need to be investigated. Some sort of charges. Something's got to be, it's got to stop. Matt, this madness has got to stop. Yeah. Anyway, such bullshit. Agreed. Agreed. But um, in the meantime, <laughs> apparently voting went very smoothly today. Yep. So um, we'll see what happens. 9.1 million ballots. 52% are uh, from Democrats. 26%, I think, are from Republicans and another 20 something percent from uh, independents. Those are good so. numbers for him staying. We just I just want to see it. I just want to see it. I'm going to say 64 percent. I'd love it. That's what I'm saying. All right. Voted no. That's what I'm saying. All right. That is it for today. Until tomorrow, everyone, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet and take care of your mental health. I've been Allison Gill. And I've been Dana Goldberg. And I almost forgot my name. And I did not. And then <laughs> the beans. beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com.